Hello and welcome to Movie Challenge Accepted. I'm Jason. And I am Marco. And we are back with two movies that probably define the nature of this podcast. Although I think I said that last week, right? With uh, John Wick. I actually think we've been saying that quite a bit the last uh, three or four episodes, but uh, you are correct. Yeah. If there is one that absolutely defines it, this would be it. Yeah, I think these two movies, uh, Mulholland Drive and Maverick, probably represent the two sides of Hollywood. And in fact, one of them, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, was not made within the Hollywood system. And I think that's evident in just about every scene. (laughs) And then you look at you know, we'll, we'll talk, we're going to start with Mulholland Drive, but then you look at, at Maverick, directed by Richard Donner, who is just a workhorse of dependable, if unimaginative, Hollywood fare, excluding right. two movies I love, <laughs> Superman and Superman 2. Right, okay. But, you know, he... he oh, I, but even there, they took away number two from him, so I, for the most part... Have you ever seen the Donner cut of Superman 2? I actually have not. Neither and, have I. And I, I. And I have actually stayed away from it because I enjoy the one that we saw, the theatrical version that was given to us in uh, 1980, I, I, I guess, is when it came out. And um, I, I can't imagine how much better it might be. So I'm good with it. Yeah, I'm kind of good with it, too. I love Superman 2. I think it's probably better than Superman 1. But I agree. I, you know, I still think it's... It, I, I would be curious to see what the other film would have been. But of course, right. you know, he, he goes on lethal, the Lethal Weapon series, Assassins, mm-hmm. Conspiracy right. Theory, 16 Blocks. Right. All fine films in so much <laughs> that there's not a lot of challenges being embarked upon by him as a filmmaker. The, the flip side, of course, mm-hmm. is right. your friend David Lynch, who you've now seen two movies on this podcast. Uh, yes, way, yes. way, way back, we we did Lost Highway, yeah. and Mulholland Drive is arguably his feature length masterpiece. I think his mm-hmm. his masterpiece as a work of visual art is always going to be Twin Peaks: The Return. I'll agree there. But wait, have you seen Twin Peaks: The Return? I saw. Um, no, I'm sorry. I saw the series, not The Return. I oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So I was I was thinking we were going with the series there. No, no. So, the, well, The Return came out in 2017. It was a Showtime right. 18 and a half hour. It was incredible. But uh, right. Mulholland Drive 2001 premiered at the Cannes Film Festival uh, to rave reviews. Un- unlike most David Lynch films, it made some money, made $20 million worldwide, which is not common for his work. On a $15 million budget. On a $15 million budget, which, again, he turned a profit. But... Okay. It is a movie. Well, you know what? Let me ask you this. What is Mulholland Drive about? Well, (laughs) uh, Jason, you are definitely going to have to drive this uh, podcast today, unfortunately, because to me, it was less of a fever dream than Lost Highway was, which was the first one you had me watch um, on our second episode. However, this movie was still a fever dream. So it, it, unlike... Unlike you, I've only seen this movie uh, once, and I, I believe that you it needs multiple viewings because it has a lot of different layers to it. While I understand the overall point of the film, I, I there were parts of it that I don't understand why they were in there. Actors, why they were in there. Scenes, why they were in there. When it didn't seem to be needed for the overall point of the film. So... 
the thing that you have to know about Lynch is Lynch is into transcendental meditation. And if you've watched interviews with Lynch, very famously, he will never discuss what any of his works are about. He doesn't actively discuss, well, you know, Agent Dale Cooper is a representation of pure goodness or uh, the effort of, you know, men to sort of right wrongs or however you want to interpret Dale Cooper, Mm -hmm. for instance. Lynch will never get into that. Lynch will, he'll never answer direct questions. Everything is, he believes, there to be interpreted. But he also okay. th- he also thinks that there is a right answer and a right interpretation in terms of what he was trying to get across, and he just won't tell you what it is because he. Okay, but isn't that a little bit self serving, where a director is telling you, "Well, I know what it is, but it's up to you to figure it out," and and then tell you that he won't discuss it with you. It's just up to you to figure it out. You know, th- there have been directors in there that have left Easter eggs, obviously, and and um, and and themes in the film where you do have to try and think a little bit, but is he so um, above everybody else where he does not want to, he doesn't feel the need to have to describe um, his art to anybody? No, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a matter of, of being above anyone else. I think he, he believes that when, when something is discussed, okay, he, he like, he's a big fan of poetry and he likes poetry because poetry can be more than the words on the page, right? Poetry, words on the right. page can be fairly uh, brisk or, you know, generally poetry is, is shorter in, in, in format than prose mm-hmm. and right. it's open to greater interpretation. And I think what he wants is for you as a viewer or for whatever he's creating for it to be more than, Oh, this is a movie about a woman who goes to Hollywood and has her dreams crushed. And if he has to explain it, it loses some of the power. Like talking about the thing makes the thing small. He's said that in interviews. I'm I'm obviously paraphrasing. And you're a big fan of that. I know that we've we've you've spoken specifically about that part of movies that you love that you have to think about it and it, that you don't want the movies to explain to you what's going on. Um, but for a person like myself, and I don't know if I consider myself a cinephile after doing 20 plus episodes with you, I realized that my knowledge of, of films is it's not as high as yours. However, I I love films and I don't understand a filmmaker like Lynch his uh what is his motivation of making a film like this where it really is to me just a mind bending uh film from beginning to end and if if you have to think about it or if I have to watch this movie four times is that what he wants is that is that going to get me what he wants out of this film I can't speak for him, but I think that what he wants is for his work to inspire something in the viewer, to to make a connection with the viewer in some way. And that connection or that reaction might be different from you and from me. And because there's that whole concept of authorial intent, right? And someone writes something and they write a story aiming to talk about the theme of, I don't know, uh, classism. But Mm -hmm. someone else reads it or someone else watches a movie or watches a TV show and they can extract a totally different meaning that was not intended but could be found in the text or the subtext 
by a different person with a different life experience. And so I think that Lynch wants mystery to exist because mystery prompts thought. And I think what he wants, and again, I'm not a Lynch scholar. I'm not, as much as I like to pretend I'm a cinephile, I realize in the end that there are so many people who are so much more well-versed and well-educated in in the world of film. well, you're up there. You're up there, and and I I would like to think that I'm up there also in a different way. <laughs> you know. But, yeah, uh, I think we. Yeah, yeah know, we both but, uh, bring yeah, we a point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and everyone brings a point of view. Like I don't, and that's what we've said from the beginning of this podcast is that like just because you like X and I likes Y, I like Y doesn't make either of them better than the other. It's just what speaks to us. And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, Lynch and it's become its own adjective. But things that are Lynchian. I find entrancing and I don't know necessarily why that is. I'm just drawn to it personally and specifically with this movie. So I'm, I'm like you. All right. And I came to Lynch a little later in my life and I've done a lot of reading. I've read, uh, his memoir that came out in 2018 with Christine McKenna room to dream. And he talks about each of his projects up to that point in 2018. And, He's very revealing in his belief of of the creative process. So for those of you that don't know, Lynch is, like I said earlier, Lynch is into transcendental meditation. And Lynch believes that ideas come to us from the subconscious or from this, this endless ocean of subconscious thought. And when an idea comes to you, you have to honor the idea. And he has famously spoken about how his inception of Blue Velvet, the, the first idea that came to him was a severed ear in a grass field near a picket fence. And if you haven't seen Blue Velvet, that's how the movie opens. It is literally, he he absorbs these thoughts that come to him and he depicts them on screen. And they're not always linear. They're not always cohesive. People would argue. Uh, not always. <laughs> at, at his, at his, people would argue that at his worst, they are almost impenetrable. But I think if you... And like you've said, you don't want to watch a movie four times to figure out what it is, and that's totally fine, and that's totally cool, and I get it. But 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 to that point, I have seen films where I did not get it the first time around, a la Pulp Fiction, and I remember seeing that movie in the theaters three times. And and, and so there ha- there are films out there that grab me enough to say, okay, I want to see it again. And I got more out of it the second and the third and the fourth time. Hell, you know, that's a movie that I didn't realize that there was a person smoking a bong during the needle scene of bringing Uma Thurman back until probably 10 years later. So, you know, uh, you know, obviously there are films out there that I that uh, I didn't understand right away. This film, I may want to watch again, but I can't tell you right now what I got out of it. Okay. All right. And, and, and that's fair because I've had to read articles and and you know a writer i i loved uh he's that he's passed away now but david foster wallace is a big david lynch fan and i don't think he wrote about this book i can't remember when david foster wallace died but i don't know if he was alive when this came out in 2001 but mulholland drive i've done enough reading to kind of see what other people who I think are smarter than me kind of believe what it's about. Obviously the surface level reading is Naomi Watts plays Betty who go wins a jitterbug contest and goes to Hollywood with that classic dream of becoming a star. You see, that's so funny. The jitterbug part came 10 minutes before the end of the movie. And I thought that was part of the, you know, fantasy of it also. That's so funny that you actually bring it out as a solid 
point in the film. Well, I've I've also seen this movie like five times. And I've read about this movie. So for me, then that's the other thing is sort of when we absorb this movie and like where you are and how how Mm -hmm. familiar you are with it, like you can parse it out in its chronology in a nonlinear fashion. And then you can sort of take the pieces and work them together in a way where it makes more sense to you, right? Or at least more sense to me and more sense to other people. So the... (laughs) I'm going to segue right into this. There's a uh, a, a YouTube channel that uh, mm-hmm. has done two phenomenal uh, re- deep dives into okay. David Lynch's work. One, he uh, the channel's Twin Perfect. I'll put a link in the show notes. Cool. But they do a one-hour deep dive into what Mulholland Drive is about, and then there's another four-hour deep dive into what Twin Peaks is about. And if you if you've got four hours to spare <laughs> out of your life. And you want to listen to (laughs) one guy give a dissertation level analysis of what Twin Peaks is actually about. It's phenomenal viewing. But again, not everyone's got the time that I have. So I understand that. (laughs) So anyway, his interpretation and the interpretation of many people regarding uh, Mulholland Drive is kind of how the Hollywood system chews up and spits out idealists. And you get that through two characters. You get that through Adam Kersher, who, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Justin Thoreau, right. who oddly enough, they, in most David Lynch movies, you don't have a character who seems to be aware of how batshit crazy the world is. Like everyone in a David Lynch movie just kind of exists as if all this weird stuff is normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the Kersher directorial character is like one of the only characters I can remember in a Lynch movie who's constantly, or at least in the first half of the movie, is walking around saying like, this is crazy. A cowboy? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll go meet a cowboy in the middle of the night. Or, you know, he, he runs into uh, the mafia types or the not really mafia, but kind of the the representation in Dan Hedaya and Angela Badalamente of Mm -hmm. the Hollywood machine that tells him in the meeting, this is the girl. And it is his (laughs) directorial, creative, artistic vision that is being crushed by the machine that is Hollywood. And Mm -hmm. Lynch has spoken on this where Lynch is like, hey, fate plays a role. And there are people who are talented who never make it. And there are people who make it who aren't as talented. And there is an element of luck and whether or not the machine chooses you to succeed. And in this movie, I think the idea is, is that we're watching Betty either have a vision or a dream of her own success that the, then she then awakens from. But I think just saying it's a dream is kind of a reductive interpretation. And I don't think Lynch is ever that simple. Right. Or, this YouTube channel that again, I have to, I can take no credit for this interpretation. Mm-hmm. It is that guy's belief that Mulholland Drive is about the persistent sexual abuse of actresses by the Hollywood system. Okay. So, uh, where, in, in what particular scene did you actually think that maybe you saw, uh, you know, sexual abuse? Or inferred sexual abuse. Okay. Because so, there, there may have been one for me. All right. I'm curious to see. Everyone get comfortable. This might be a four-hour podcast. All right. Oh, God. <laughs> so, the movie opens, and this is so complicated to try to explain in a, in, a, in a podcast in any kind of fashion, but 
the uh, Rita character, who is also Camilla Rhodes, the the Laura, the character played by Laura Howering. Got it. She is in the car. She's told to get out of the car. There's the car crash, and she leaves shortly after. And and she kind of loses. Her, she has amnesia, and she stumbles into Betty's aunt's apartment. And then you cut to the terrible hitman who's being told the story of the car crash by Ed. Mm-hmm. Or not Ed. That might have been Ed's uh, agent. Right. And there's the little black book. And the little black book, obviously, for people like you and I, we remember before smartphones, you know, you would keep your your phone numbers of potential dates or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. people you've slept with in right. a, a, the, the colloquial term was a little black book. And there's a, a, a belief that as kind of Betty goes through this, there are different points in the story, specifically when there's that doubling effect when they find the body in the apartment, mm-hmm. where Betty makes it a certain point in an active decision to engage in the casting couch process. And that is when she tries to and and it's obviously none of this is is overt and this is one person's interpretation and i'm doing it a terrible injustice of of how he's doing it um (laughs) better than me better than me don't worry about it keep going (laughs) but it, it essentially is what he's saying is that when betty decides that she can't make it on she she has this dream of what hollywood is right and that dream is kind of personified in the uh the the audition process because mm-hmm. I think we have an idea that never would there be the director, um, the producer, the director's assistant, the star of the show and Chad Everett, who's in one of the more hilarious performances uh, in the movie is just his look when Bob Brooker, the director, is giving this pretentious, awful advice mm-hmm. in terms of what, right. what Betty needs to do. And then just an, there's another casting director there. And it's sort of this idealized version of what Hollywood's going to be. And it's never going to be that for Betty. But what she does do at a certain point, and if you, t- if you want to watch the story and tell it out of, out of order, is towards the end of the movie, when Betty is sort of run down and she's in the, she's in the Winkies, with mm-hmm. the hitman but now the hitman you'll notice he doesn't have joe as the character he doesn't have one blue eye and one like white eye the oh, the, the right. chromatic he, issue he did, right i thought i was seeing things right <laughs> he gives her the blue key and he's like because she slaps down the casting photo of camilla rhodes who is now obviously the brunette version of rita and she says this is the girl and the surface level interpretation is that she wants that woman killed Right. right, because she's jealous of her because they used the date and it didn't go well, and now, you know, the Camilla character has has made it, and obviously there's an interpretation that she is now famous because of her relationship with Justin Theroux, the Adam Kersher character. At the party, that's what you get, and also at the party, Coco, who herself Ann Miller is an actress from the golden era of Hollywood. She's listening to Betty kind of tell the story of how she came to she, you know, that's when you learn the jitterbug story. I wanted to be an actress. So I came out to Hollywood. Camilla helped me get a few roles. But now Camilla is with Adam Kersher. And you can see the bitterness and the jealousy in Betty's face. Naomi wants his face. And Coco at one point pats her hand as if to say, I've heard this before. 
And then shortly after that, Betty is in the Winkies. She tells Joe, this is the girl. She's got the money. And he tells her, you know, if you do this, you'll, there's no going back. And she's like, I know. And essentially, he, he says, you know, the blue key, which is symbolic in Lynch's work. The color blue is always the color of mystery. Right. And he says, if you do this, there's no going back. And she's like, yes, I understand that. And she commits that is the symbolic. Again, you can interpret this this, this way or not. It's everyone's you know, got their own view. But that is the symbolic gesture of her saying, I'm going to partake in, in this time-worn, terrible process of exchanging sexual favors for movie roles. Mm-hmm. And the when she's back in her apartment and the jitterbug judges or the, the old people that she sort of met when she was coming to Los Angeles, when they sneak in under the door and they're terrifying her and she kills herself, essentially what she's doing is she has murdered her dream, her idealized dream of what Hollywood is. And it is being replaced with the harsh reality of sexual favor, uh, favors. So uh, that's actually the one part of this film that I did really understand. I did get that. It was... Um it wasn't subtle and it it wasn't underneath any surface. There were no layers that I had to peel back. So here's my question. Why would Lynch go through so much effort to real? Cause I really do believe that that is the main um, theme of this film. That's my, my interpretation of it. Why would he hide it underneath so many different layers of storytelling that I feel was not needed? I can, my opinion, of course. But, I, well, I, how, yeah, I can give you that answer in, in, in this, okay? And, and these two movies are the perfect examples of why Lynch mm-hmm. does what he does, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because this movie came out 21 years ago, and right. here we are talking about it. And a movie like Maverick, which is engages in voiceover, and it's a very straightforward story. There's a beginning, a middle, mm-hmm. an end, and there's right, no right. there's no real stakes. And we'll we'll get in we'll dive into Maverick a little later. But right. I will never think about Maverick again after this episode. <laughs> and I think what someone like Lynch is trying mm-hmm. to do is to convey an idea without necessarily expressing and he can be confounding for this and he can be obtuse and and impenetrable and i get that but he is i think trying to create work that is timeless yeah okay and something like maverick or or a lot a lot of other artists and there's great movies that are that don't try so hard to be quote-unquote difficult Mm. But I think Lynch wants people to come to their own understanding of what they're seeing as opposed to him overtly telling people what they are seeing. And the, the, the movie, arguably, the movie that is most straightforward in so much that we have voiceover interiority of characters saying what they're feeling is Dune. And Dune, Dune is arguably his worst movie yeah. by far. Uh, yeah. uh, well, we know you, you've told me what he's had to go through uh getting that movie done and uh you know he he will never make a movie where the um uh, studio interferes again um you know his legacy and that's what you want to call it when it comes to lynch and how he's going to be remembered if you're saying that he wants people to think about these films and remember these films in a certain way his legacy is going to be 
as a, the director where a majority of the people watching the films are going to interpret it as being impenetrable. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I mean, but you look back at a film and I'm going to compare Pulp Fiction once again, because Tarantino also has films that are chronologically out of order and takes multiple viewings to maybe get it all but at no point can you say that Tarantino films are 100 are are like Lynch where they're they're just misunderstood or you just can't get it or 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 I don't know if the if um, Tarantino has put as much filler in my opinion uh, in his films as Lynch has because to get to the root of the plot in most Tarantino films I don't need to dig that deep as I do in Lynch well, I think Tarantino's much more on the page in terms of how he's telling the story, even if he's doing it with chronolog- playing with timelines like he did with Pulp Fiction. Right. And of right. course, before that, um, uh, shoot, who did who did the Gina Carano film that, that I wasn't crazy about? Who, uh, Haywire. Uh, who did that? That was uh, Steven Soderbergh. So Soderbergh did that before, uh, I think, in time, in terms of when they're released. He did that with Traffic, where different storylines were playing out over different time periods. So, yeah, there are directors who do that, but I think they are also telling a story. Maybe that story comes together. Like, very famously, like Christopher Nolan plays with time in every movie, in terms of yes. how he tells it. He, the man cannot tell a linear story from point A to point B. And, and that's maybe mm. some people dig that, maybe some people don't. Mm-hmm. But I think Lynch is more challenging. And I don't know if he's doing it. Like, because there's a way to look at him where he's kind of sitting back there with a smirk and he enjoys watching people have a difficult time with his movies. I don't think that's the case. I think from watching enough interviews with him and reading his books, I think he either is saying this is for you or it isn't. And that's okay. Whereas Tarantino, I think, is much more trying to entertain. And I think Tarantino wants to depict cool shit in a, on screen in a way that audiences can connect. Okay, I get all that. There, um, as far as this is for you, and it's up to you to you know figure it out. You know. I, I believe that also may um, apply to the actors in his films. I cannot, for the life of me, think that every single actor in this film knew what what the entire film was going to be about. Well, I mean, I've read articles in the past where there have been actors or actresses in films that saying, "I I was just in it. I had no idea what the film's about." I, I could see these people coming in, reading their lines, and him piecing it together. In fact, I know that. That's what he did in this film. He pieced it together because it was something that he did. He worked on a pilot for ABC, didn't work, went over to France. They put it together with a few other scenes. So that's exactly what this was. You you told me that Billy Ray Cyrus was good in this film. What was good about Billy Ray Cyrus in this film? I'm not sure <laughs> really? I said he was good. I said he was no, in no. it. Uh, no, but everyone, no, no. everyone in, in Lynch movies is acting in a certain way. Kind of like uh, you watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer, right? Everyone is kind of stilted and reserved and monotone and almost disconnected from humanity in that movie. And I think that's a directorial choice. Mm -hmm. And I think acting in most Lynch films 
is a specific people are following specific instructions from lynch and i think the best obviously the best performance in the movie i shouldn't say obviously the best performance i think in the movie is naomi watts because 100 she is one thing when she gets there mm-hmm. and she she's kind of portraying that wide-eyed naive naive sort of girl oh, yeah. that gets off the plane and then by the end of the movie you have a strung out oh yeah disaffected masturbating naomi watts crying on the sofa Mm-hmm. And it is heart-wrenching that you see that this is what this town and this industry and this world has done to her. Mm-hmm. And the fact, in another comment on how this may or may not be an interpretation or depiction of the Hollywood ca- casting couch system, is right. Adam Kersher, he goes after the Hollywood system with a golf club. But there doesn't seem to be fallout for him, right? Like, he's still right. making movies. He's up in, in the Hollywood Hills. He's joking about the fact that she got the pool guy and he got the pool. Like, there's no... Well, what's funny about uh, Thoreau's Adam Kersher is that I felt bad for him in the beginning of the film. And by the end of the film, he was your typical douchey um, uh, director cliche. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering which part of him... Uh, of uh, in in this film is supposed to be the real one. Oh, I I think it's definitely I I think similarly there's there's like a parallel road here where Naomi Watts gets off the plane, Betty uh Betty gets off the plane and she is is traumatized and beaten mm-hmm. down and crushed by the Hollywood system. In the beginning mm-hmm. of the movie, uh, Adam Kersher it is talking about no, this is my movie and right. Dan Hedaya's this is not your movie anymore. And he yeah, gives yeah, in, yeah. and guess what? He he has no problem. He gives up the wife to Billy Ray Cyrus. Mm-hmm. He's still yeah. making movies. He's yeah. he's showing. He's there's a scene with um, Laura Haring with when she's the Camilla Rhodes character. When right. he shows an actor, this is what you do when they're in the car, where he clears mm-hmm. the set, and he says, "You bring her in, you kiss her. It's just an extension of a movement. This is how you do it." And then he says, "Kill the lights," and Wait. that is that is. I don't want to say literally, but that is a depiction of someone in power in Hollywood telling another man, this is what you have to do to this woman in order to get the best performance out of her. And mm-hmm. you're going to get a benefit out of this too, because now you get to make out with this beautiful brunette. Right. And that crushes, if you see when Naomi Watts is off on the side, she's watching this right. and that just crushes her. And there's yes. two ways of, of looking at that. It's either... She's crushed because she's in love with Camilla and Camilla and their relationship is foundering or she mm-hmm. desperately wants to be Camilla and she chose not to go that route. And as a result, she's living in a shitty apartment Right. and her, her career did not go the way she wanted. She got bit parts and, you know, it didn't work mm-hmm. out for her. So, you know, like I, it, it's tough to feel bad for, for Adam Kershaw, like you said, in the end, but... No, definitely not at the end. No, no, no. In the beginning. Taken away from him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's just, you know, this this kind of came out. I don't remember when when Me Too started, but there, and you can maybe I'll even do a deep dive into some of the David Lynch videos that are on YouTube, his interviews, so people can sort of go down this rabbit hole on their own. Is him talking about the the Me Too movement. This is obviously later and and a much more recent conversation. But there's an interview that he's uh, doing in a coffee house. And as that interview is going on, or or shortly before that interview occurred, uh, Charlie Rose, the talk show host, was accused of sexual misconduct, and he quit his PBS interview show. 
Right. And in the course of that interview, David Lynch is saying about how this sexual abuse has gone on forever. It's an open secret. And this is just part of Hollywood. And it's a terrible thing. And it's been there forever. And I think Lynch's affinity for classic Hollywood and specifically the movie Sunset Boulevard on which part of this movie is, is sort of taken from or based on, you know, that this is his way of sort of showing Hollywood. This is the monster you are. And he didn't make this in Hollywood because like you no, said, France. yeah, it was supposed to be a pilot and mm-hmm. very famously an ABC executive watched it at 6 AM with his coffee in his hand and hated it. <laughs> and he canceled the pilot and Lynch went, Oh Yeah. F you, I'm going to France, I'm getting my money together, and I'm putting this, and it's an indictment of Hollywood, the worst aspects of Hollywood. So it's funny that you say that, and yes, it is absolutely an indictment of it, yet it is considered his best work. His best work is an indictment of Hollywood. I find it very ironic. Um, I also, as I'm looking at the IMDb here, of all these actors and actresses that are in this film, I'm, I, you know, Robert Forster, Dan Hedaya, you know, Billy Ray Cyrus. I, I, I get it. I know. I don't want to harp on him. That uh, why were these people in this film? Because I think people. <laughs> yeah, did they did they want to work with him? I yeah. Mean, they, they, I, I can't even remember. I, I just remember now that Robert Forster was that detective looking over the um, crash scene, a supposed crash scene at the beginning of the film. And that was it. So Adam Naiman is a film writer and critic who has written frequently for The Ringer. And in 2019, he wrote a long, or I'm sorry, not 2019, 2021. He wrote a a deep dive into what he thinks Mulholland Drive is. And he comments on the fact that what you just said, that, oh, shit, it's Robert Forrester. And he's got two lines or three lines, and he never shows up again. And apparently that is because that character was in the pilot version of this and it was expected that he was going to be part of the series going forward. But when it didn't become a series, Lynch decided to rework the material and to subvert the traditional cop investigation network TV show tropes that were so established in 2001. And so you do get this sort of these experiences where actors show up for a single scene and then they're gone and you wonder why that is. But I think it's because Lynch, I mean, famously Lynch hired Watts on, well, he, he gave her the, um, he gave her the audition based almost exclusively on a headshot photo. And he said, I saw an actress with a beautiful soul. He he didn't say this is the girl. (laughs) He might have, he might Uh, have. I I guarantee you that came up, (laughs) but you know, they've very famously ever since this have had a, a, a relationship, a mutually respectful relationship that Watts shows up in Twin Peaks, The Return. And, you know, it's it's kind of confounding because Lynch will often depict sex or nudity or he will depict women on screen in a very bare, honest way. Yeah. And there's nothing sexual about it. Well, I mean, Watts and Herring are are nude twice in this, or at least they right. they they kind of make out twice. Right. But it seems like female actresses are drawn to him and work with him over and over. Isabella Rossellini, Laura Dern has been in a number right. of his work. Uh, Naomi yeah. Watts, like there seems to be 
a, a, a place where where Lynch can sort of I don't want to say get away with this, but maybe he he shoots or he explains these things in such a way where he makes the actors comfortable and they're like, okay, yeah, I might be topless in this scene and I might be having to give this emotional heart wrenching speech to my ex mm-hmm. or the character who's playing my ex, mm-hmm. but. Lynch is explained in whatever reason why, like, this is the motivation, this is the scene, this is why you're doing this. Because, mm-hmm. the, you know, famously, there's, uh, again, I'm using the Adam Naiman article, where um, there is, when Bi- you're talking about Billy Ray Cyrus, there's a, a famous right. comment here where Justin Theroux straight up asked Lynch at some point in this movie, what's going on? And Lynch's response is, is uh, according to a, a, an interview with IndieWire, Lynch tells Thoreau, I don't know, buddy, let's find out. And and Thoreau, well, Thoreau said yeah. working with Lynch is like being on an escalator into a cloud. Uh, and and he also said that he works that Lynch works from the subconscious. Uh, okay, subconscious. We all know the subconscious is not something that we actually can look into. It usually comes to us in our dreams. And that's what you see with his films, fever dreams. You've said it yourself. I, I just I need something a little bit more tangible i guess in my films i'm not gonna say this was a bad film i'm gonna say this is a bad film for me at first viewing and i would need and i'm more than open to more viewings of it but like to be ready for this podcast even though you've driven the first 40 minutes of it because i asked you to is that i had to look into articles about this film and and, and not that I haven't before, but I absolutely positively needed to to see what it was in this film that I could talk about that I understood. And it's actually the very first time in 20 plus episodes that I've been affected this way by a film that I really did not grasp it 100 percent. I, I didn't grasp the first time I saw this. I didn't grasp it either. <laughs> and I think and, and that's what this podcast is kind of about. Right. It's it's I my, what I'm drawn to right. is a work of be it a book or a movie or a TV show or whatever that I, I'm going to have questions about over and over again. And it's right. going to stick in my mind and it's going to rumble around in there and maybe something will click. And it's just some, it, I don't know. That's just my personality. And you have, have professed, you know, many times and mm-hmm. most of the world agrees with you <laughs> that movies are entertainment they are escapism they are a place to sort of have an experience that you would not have otherwise and to enjoy yourself or you know maybe see a a love story or you know but for the most part watch you know spider-man kill dr octopus over and over again but that movies are a different experience and what they bring to your life is different than what they bring to my life and guess what? There's a, a hundred streaming platforms. Not everything needs to be all things to all people. And that's I, totally I, fine. Yeah. I, uh, I think that this particular film encapsulates that 100%. Uh, what'd you think of the cowboy? Uh, okay. There's another thing. I mean, what the hell's he doing? <laughs> I actually thought that Billy Ray Cyrus was going to be the cowboy when I looked at the, um, and the the credits is going to be a person named the cowboy. What did I think? I don't know. I don't know what I think. I mean, he's obviously some somebody there. I don't know. He's like an enforcer of some sort. Like you need to do this, this, and you know. I I don't know. 
I don't know. What am I supposed to think? So the the video that I was talking about earlier, the cowboy represents old Hollywood. And the actor playing the cowboy is David Lynch's producing partner in many mm -hmm. projects. And I'm yeah, trying to Mon look up his name. Monty, Monty Montgomery. Thank you. And Monty is wearing clothes that were owned by one of the first Hollywood Western stars, a guy by the name of Tom Nix. Mm -hmm. And Tom Nix was in uh, silent movies way back in the day. And that clothing and where they're meeting, because where that ranch is described is right under the Hollywood sign. And essentially, it, the cowboy represents old Hollywood telling Adam Kersher, yeah, you're coming into this thinking that you're going to get to do what you want, but I'm the machine and I'm telling you, you will see me once more if you do good, twice more if you do bad. Right. And in that point, like Adam's, and you can see Thoreau's performance change in the course of that scene where he mm -hmm. gets there and he's like, you're fucking ridiculous. The hell with you. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I'll listen yeah. to you. But then yeah. something changes when the cowboy's like, are you telling me what I want to hear? Or do you actually believe yeah. what you just said? Yeah. And, yeah. and you see Thoreau's character sort of change and, and he's like, oh, I, I see what this is and I see now what I have to do. And of course, obviously later in the movie, you know, Camilla Rhodes steps into that recording booth and he turns to the producer and he says, you know, this is the girl. He learns to play the game. And it could be argued that Naomi Watts doesn't learn to play the game soon enough. No. And when she finally does, it drives her to either literally or figuratively kill herself because she's destroying the part of her that was good that got off the plane. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's just... It was a lot. It was a lot for me. I have to be honest with you. Do you it, ever? Uh, yeah. <laughs> do you ever wonder how many of our listeners are watching the more challenging of our films? Because I know someone I, that's watch. At least I, I know one person. At least one person that is watching every movie we do. Uh, I don't know that these people. I I know that uh, well. Uh, James from uh, Secret Origin, the Main Condition podcast, has been accruing a list of films uh, that he listens to uh, on our podcast. Um, I know that there is a person in Miami who is uh, has watched a lot of Lynch films, so he gets to me. And we know that Sharif uh, has watched many of our films also. So I mean, there there's a there's a handful anyway. Because I often wonder, like when when I really go into the esoteric, uh, off the beaten path stuff, like Tarkovsky, I, I do wonder if I and I hope, and because that's the idea, right? Is that right. you know I give you a movie like Mulholland Drive, and someone goes out and watches it, and they're like, oh, that was interesting, that was different, and obviously. I You've done that with me, where I've gone yeah. and seen movies that I wouldn't have otherwise, but I do as a result of this podcast, and and I'm like, oh, that was that was not nearly what I thought it was going to be. Right, exactly, and, in a good yeah, way. I think, yeah, absolutely. But you know what was exactly what I thought it was going to be? Oh, un unfortunately, that would be Maverick, and it really breaks my heart. I I knew that this was coming. I really did, and I. I only because of you know you texted me yesterday a couple of words and uh, i just I, I you know what you you've been talking for the last 45 minutes and i appreciate that but i'm gonna need you to tell me give me a specific reason why you don't like this film so it's put out by a lot of people who are really talented 
Okay, it's yeah. written, mm-hmm. uh, of course, Maverick, 1994, starring Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, James Garner, based on the beloved, I guess by some, some uh, yeah. 1957 to 1961 TV series of the same name, which starred With James Garner, a yeah. young James Garner. And this came at a point where Hollywood was just mining old TV shows for new movies. And we had movies like The Addams Family Values, The Fugitives, Beverly Hillbillies, The Flintstones. There was a My Favorite Martian movie. So I guess in a way it's kind of funny Mm. that I complained to you that there are no original ideas in Hollywood. But way back in the 90s, Hollywood was mining (laughs) its own past for movies. Okay. But, you know, uh, uh, written uh, by William Goldman, who is one of the most beloved and respected screenwriters in history. Yeah, and, and you, were, you were aghast yesterday. <laughs> I, was, I was crushed, but I, I, hadn't, I didn't know a ton about William Goldman's like, uh, work life beyond his work. And, and if you're not familiar with William Goldman, um, he is the writer of movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, The Hot Rock, a great New York City caper movie, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, A Bridge Too Far, Uh, Misery, he he adapted that. Uh, An underrated uh, Robert Downey movie, uh, Chaplin, uh, he did that as well. But, oh, I didn't think it was underrated. I love that movie. Um, he's a contri- he's a contributing writer to uh, Papillon, which was the mm-hmm. I think Steve McQueen, Dustin Hoffman uh, movie about French uh, Guiana prison. Um, but Goldman is like wildly respected in Hollywood history as being this phenomenal writer. And then I saw him do this, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong. Like here again. It's it's ballsy of me who's sad who's sitting here and has never written a movie that's been produced and has never made a movie. It's kind of ballsy for me to sit. We here. don't judge. We don't judge. <laughs> but it is ballsy for me to judge other people, right? Because I'm sure a lot of people, and we've said this from the beginning, is I try to. You don't try to shit on people's work because a lot of people work really hard to make these mm-hmm. these movies happen, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't, or sometimes they work for me. But this whole movie reeked to me of people getting a paycheck. And that is my beef with this movie, is I feel like Hollywood had a property and they said, hey, old TV shows are hot. What can we do with Maverick? And they went and they offered, I don't know what William Goldman got for this, but William Goldman very famously has made a number of comments about Hollywood works, including Mm -hmm. nobody knows what's going to be a hit. Nobody knows how any of this works. Um, He wanted to be a novelist and he did write 20 novels in his career under pseudonyms, but no one wanted to read his stories. And so what he did is he learned the craft of screenwriting. And he famously has said, screenwriting is not a talent. It's a skill. He just happened to work very hard at it and got good at it. But he does not view screenwriting as some wildly creative act, even Mm. though he's really good at it. He wrote The Princess Bride. I mean... Yeah, yeah, he did, and and he's the right, uncredited right. writer with a, on on a ton of movies. He's one of those guys that they used to bring in and punch up a script and make it better, you know, right before production. Right. right. So my my perception is that a lot of people got paid a lot of money to make this movie, <laughs> and I feel like it shows. God, I I I, I don't see that at all i saw a comedy adventure okay well i've listened i saw it in 94 in the movie theaters it was uh what you would call a 
you know, a summer blockbuster came out in May 20th, 1994. And uh, that was a big summer for a lot of different films. This one kind of it came in under the radar for me. Um, you know, Mel Brooks out uh, in the Mel Brooks, excuse me, <laughs> Mel Gibson, you know, has, he had made a bunch of Donner films, obviously, in the in the previous um, seven, eight years. He he was the hottest guy in Hollywood at the time. Uh, uh, Jodie Foster coming off of uh, uh, her win for Silence of the Lambs. James Garner, you knew him and a bunch of other stuff. And so many other actors in this film made it so fun. The, the story to me was was fun and original. I hadn't watched the show in 1955, I'm 57, never saw any reruns about it, so I couldn't tell you what that was from. I know there was gambling involved and Western stuff. You didn't find anything in the performances of these characters to make it enjoyable for you. You, you who have watched a Fast and the Furious film and said, okay, I'm just going to let myself go, couldn't let yourself go in this? You actually had to look so deep into the story and who wrote it that, it that it bothered you that much? No, I'm not looking at it so deep because I think there's nothing deep about this. I think it's being played so broadly and so borderline slapstick comedy level that th there's no room for like nuance. Like everyone is at 11 and Gibson is likable. And this is, you know, obviously we've learned things yeah, about who Gibson free. is as a yeah, person I, now, but back I, then... You know, this was his character, not his character. This was kind of his persona, and obviously, as you know, as 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 Martin Riggs in in the Lethal Weapon series, which, right. like you right. said, he did with Donner. Mm -hmm. Like this was kind of who he was, and he was enjoyable. And you went to go see a, a Lethal Weapon movie, and I mean, look at this run uh, from '85. He does Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Lethal Weapon, Tequila Sunrise, Lethal Weapon 2, Bird on a Wire, Air America. He does Hamlet. Interesting. Um, <laughs> then he immediately goes back to Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 3, Man Without a Face, Maverick. And then this is telling. And this is what makes me think that this was a one for you, one for me kind of deal. Mm -hmm. He does Maverick. His next movie, Braveheart. Braveheart. Yep. And I think this is sort of one of those examples of... I really want to make, and I don't know what studio did Braveheart, uh, so, so that's a Paramount movie, but I'm not sure um, uh, who did uh, Maverick. Uh, Maverick, look, uh, Maverick looks like the Warner Brothers movie, so it's a little bit different, but it looks like he, he needed or wanted or, you know, I think someone came with a bag of money and they put it on a desk and they said, Mel, we want you to, to just come in and be charming and funny and be yourself and play Brett, Brett Maverick. It'll be a good time. And he did. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to say that there's anything, <laughs> excuse me. I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that because we need fun movies, but yeah, this was a fun movie. I, I you know, I, 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 it's amazing how much we disagree on this film. I uh, and and uh, you know people leading up to this podcast when we release it later on today have told me that I love that film. Uh, you know, great film, both of them, great films, great choices for the both of you, knowing our our tastes and where we're coming from on the podcast. And I I'm I'm I am genuinely disturbed and bothered and upset at how much you did not like this film and let I it really be am. let really it be am. known that i'm in the minority here too because i went back and i looked at metacritic and i looked at rotten tomatoes and it seemed to get yeah. like generally, generally positive generally reviews of yeah. uh, uh, roger ebert famously gave it three stars and said like you know this isn't a movie that needs to justify its own existence it's just a fun western and it's you know it looks western, good exactly. 
Um, yeah. I did. I I had one issue. So he, the, the get getting into more of a of a detail oriented. A, mm-hmm. there are no stakes. This is we're yeah. watching this because Brett Maverick needs to get to a poker tournament so he can win a lot of money. He's not saving someone. He's not. Uh, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We start off the film that he's about to be hanged. Hanged. <laughs> so, I mean, the stakes are he needs to, you know, get out of that particular situation. Yeah, but right that's also that. that's also the classic. And I've just, I've just, I've had my issues with you with this, where it's that classic trope of you open with your character in a harrowing situation, and then you say you cut to three days earlier or you cut to a flashback or you cut to that sort of, let me tell you how I got into this situation. And in this movie, it is literally a voiceover of Mel Gibson saying, I want, I needed to get to, you're probably wondering how I got here. Well, I needed to get 3000 more dollars to get to this uh, poker tournament, which by the way, $25,000 $25,000 in 1887, and I don't know when yeah. this is, is a, it might as well have been a million dollars. It's $555,000. So he's walking around the American West with close to yeah. a half a million modern day dollars in his pocket. In his boot. In, in his, his boot. <laughs> and, you know, so that, that, was, that, that was an issue that, like, I don't know why I should care. There's no stakes here. The, the, the character, it seems to be that everyone is rooting for Maverick just because, hey, he's kind of charming and fun. Look at that. That's Brett Maverick. He's an wacky. And it's like, I just, I don't buy into that. Okay. All right. So hold on. So hold on. We're going to do that. We're going to do something we haven't done ever in this particular, in, the, in our podcast. I'm going to go down through a couple of characters, okay? You've seen the film. You obviously remember enough of it to not like it. Tell me, what did you think of Brett Maverick? Just give me an overall, real quick. Like, he's sort of that traditional, charming, kind of a bit of a louche where, mm-hmm. you know, he's he, he's well-intentioned, but he's mm-hmm. also cares for himself. But obviously, he's kind of got the heart of gold underneath the all of the... Underneath all of the facade that he puts up, and you you know that's that's kind of the character, and he's okay. sort of right, that charming fine. rascal. Mate, rascal. He's a he's a wily charming rascal, is what he is. Jodie Foster, Annabelle Bransford. Okay, okay. This is my biggest. No, no, it can't be real quick. Okay, okay, go ahead. Jodie Foster is a tremendous actress. She's yes. terribly miscast. Oh, really? I thought it was great that she was coming out of some shell that she was in for the prior four years of movies that she was doing. I thought she was great. I I don't think she's ever bad in anything. I think sometimes she has been in movies that haven't worked as well. But uh, coming off of what she did, oh, she did Little Man Tate. Uh, right, little, right. Uh, but she comes off of Clarice Starling, and I get that she might yeah, want to do yeah. something different. So, you know, a I, I lighthearted, yeah, lighthearted, something along those lines. Um, you know, she goes on to do Nell also, which you know was an Oscar grab that didn't work for her. Yeah. Um, okay. but then she does uh, do Contact, an underrated movie, Panic Room, great movie, Flight Plan, yeah, it's pretty yeah, good. Yeah. But like, I, like would, yeah, a few years later on that one. Yeah, those. much much later, like almost a decade. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just don't think she's good at comedy. And I would argue that based on her IMDb, she didn't think she's good at comedy because she never went back to it. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and it's funny you say that because I'm not a huge Jodie Foster fan. A lot of her fa- uh, films I've, uh, I've passed on after contact, to be quite honest with you. I don't think I've ever sat through a whole whole one. I know Panic Room was out there, but not, not a huge fan of that. Um, James Coburn. 
playing James Colburn. <laughs> How can you not like him in this film? I, I don't think... I think all these side characters and like Alfred Molina, I think Molina and I would argue Molina and and Gibson give the best performances in terms of what they're trying to do. I agree. I agree. Knowing Molina as we do now, as we've seen him, he's more of a cerebral uh, kind of uh, actor in in his roles. He's playing this gruff, you know, enforcer type. You know, it was, I thought it was great. Yeah. Like, and, and I, Molina is also one of those guys that I love him whenever he shows up in anything. Um, okay. But Coburn, fine. Like, I, there's no one here who's offensive, right? Like, like, again, I'm not watching this and going, oh, by the way, Graham Greene, best, best, love him. Best part of the movie is the yeah. grant is the joseph character sort of uh subverting the trope of the native american who's kind of, who's speak yeah. oh how you know like he, yeah. he's he, he realizes that you know the he can get over on the white men that have come through yes. into his part of the country he's great he's yeah great. like he, he's awesome he was great. but he's awesome and and garner's fine like everything in this is fine this is my problem okay mm. is the movie is uh it's crafted well its story arc is right there. Like, you know, everyone kind of, you know, you, the characters kind of have arcs, although I would argue that Mel Gibson is the same character. You know, Brett is the same at the end of the movie as he is in the beginning. So... I, I would agree. You know, like, that's kind of, okay, he didn't, this character didn't undergo any change. In which case, at the end of the more than two-hour running time, I'm left to to ask, why did I watch this? If the Maverick character essentially... One, uh, a, a poker tournament. That's what the movie's about. And and if you get into like poker on screen, and this is a whole other conversation you can go down, right, is because right, not right. everyone is a degenerate gambler like I used to be. <laughs> you need to have characters explain either poker or they need to explain the idea of tells and the tells are always made so obvious because you they need to be visual like in rounders with teddy kgb um breaking the oreo apart one way when he has a hand or breaking it another way when he's when he's bluffing it check 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 all the time he checks you know (laughs) but i thought that the, I thought that it was uh, done well. I mean, the Garner explaining it and and the tells and and uh, you know looking at everybody's final hand uh, as, as Garner's telling Annabelle what everybody's got and what they need. I thought I thought that worked out very well. Oh, because he's I, talking. Oh, yeah, again, the- he's but again the Gar- the Garner character is literally he's talking to Annabelle Bransford, but he's really speaking to the audience. Yeah. Uh, yes. Of course. I and and I get that because be the way that they do it. Yeah. Right. Because not everyone's gonna gonna be a poker nerd and so you yeah. you might need to do that but like there's nothing here that like as soon as it was done but perfect example dan hiday is credited in this movie as twitchy riverboat poker player <laughs> does does he have a line did i miss it did yeah yeah he said he said i never trusted him and, and he did it in a um and an accent too. I thought so. I never trusted him when they threw somebody off. Who? Who? I think they threw off either Clint Black, or or Uncle Jesse from the Dukes of Hazard. I mean, come well, on. that was well, so. So that was the other thing. And this gets into yeah. now. This is where I kind of have to bring up you. We yeah. we've established that you are a fan of nostalgia. 
Uh, yes, and this is where I was going to go with it also. Go ahead. You take me the negative part of it before I give you the positive. It's not a negative. I'm saying that I don't understand it in your case for your age with regards to this property. So okay. James Garner left Maverick in 1959. If right. you were born in 1947, or 19, let's make it easy math, 1949. So you're 10 years old and you're watching Maverick at night with your parents. Right. Um, when this movie came out in 1994, so now 59, 60, 30, you're about 45, 47, 50 years old. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you were an adult watching Maverick and you come home from work, or maybe you have kids of your own and you're in your thirties when Maverick is airing, by the time this movie comes out, you're in your late sixties, early seventies. So Mm -hmm. this movie is targeted at a demographic that you are not really a part of. You're right. I I would not get when it comes to the series. Uh, uh, Garner, I since I did not this it works for me because I love film and I love the main characters in this film. Uh, Mel Gibson, uh, particularly Jodie Foster, coming off of Silence of the Lambs. James Garner, I couldn't tell you what I had known him from at the time, but I knew him. Um, so it was not to me. I wasn't going for. They failed if they were uh, uh, coming to me with um, a redo of a of of a show from the the 50s, but they got me with a couple of the actors. And where you're talking about nostalgia, it it they got me in there when I saw Danny Glover. Did you see Danny Glover? But see, this Uh, is the the, yeah no I did. (laughs) So this is my problem: is they got you because they're referencing works that are outside. Of the movie, yeah, okay. and it's like, oh yeah, look, very, there's there's Murtaugh, Roger Murtaugh is robbing the bank. Yeah, uh huh. Okay, but oh, uh, what else? What else did they get me with? Who else was robbing the bank with Roger Murtaugh? Did you happen to see who that was? Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman was in this film. I think one of the two Corys from our childhood. I I <laughs> come on. I I get nothing from that. I cannot explain. Oh, okay. I cannot express to, to anyone who's still <laughs> listening this deep into the podcast. I cannot express to you how disgusted I am when people oh, think God. that they can just put someone in a movie and that in and of itself is enough for to generate a reaction. And there's a way to do well, this well, right? Because we saw it. I, I, we saw it with Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah. Yeah, where okay. you bring Toby and Garfield back and it's done in a way where it becomes part of the character and part of the arc and part of the emotion. But to just have Roger Murtaugh show up and rob a bank and have him and Mel look at each other and kind of go, eh, nah. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it, I remember there being a big chuckle in the uh, movie theater at the time. And, uh, you know, there was no clapping involved uh, back then, but uh, that you knew it was him. Uh, And listen, it was a lot harder to tell that Corey Feldman, you know, but you could tell from his eyes who it was. I mean, at least I could, Um, you know, and and other people in this film that, you know, gave you a little bit of happiness. Paul L. Smith, you know, Paul L. Smith is. Uh, yeah, that is, he played in Dune. He was the, yeah, okay, there you go. The, there you uh, go. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but, and, and also apparently there's a lot of like country artists that are in yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. A bunch of them. Absolutely. But that's, you, you know what, you know what that reads to me is, so, so there's two ways. So there's another, okay, here's another thing that we can tie into how we can tie this into Mulholland Drive, right? Mm-hmm. Is okay. you take Billy Ray Cyrus and you put mm-hmm. him in a, in a completely different kind of 
role where he mm-hmm. just shows up and he's the pool guy and he's sleeping with Justin Thoreau's wife. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, man, just pretend you didn't see this. <laughs> and it's kind of, it, it's a subversion of what you expect from Billy Ray Cyrus. Right. But in right. this, it is literally just a surface level. This is a, this is Clint Black. And now, and he's literally credited as sweet faced gambler. And so what you're doing is you're saying, hey, here's a beloved country music artist. We're making a movie about the West, and we put Clint Black in it. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> uh, no, did, did it you know is not. Did you, did you know that was Clint Black? Did you know Vince Gill? I, 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 I Waylon Jennings. I mean, did you notice all these people yourself? The, the Clint Black I knew because I, I like his face I'm familiar with. I'm not as familiar with some of the other uh, uh, more classical country stars that are in this. Yeah. I, I Vince Gill was spectator number one. I wouldn't have gotten him in a million years if I wasn't told who it was. But you know, Uncle Jesse and Dan Hedaya at the uh, at the poker table. Um, you know, Waylon Jennings in there uh, at some point. Um, Jeffrey Lewis, you know, as uh, as the bank uh, the bank manager. Uh, uh, Paul L. Smith. I mean, I you you know I didn't watch Dune that much, so I wouldn't have remembered him from there. But I sure remember him in Robert Altman's uh, Popeye as Bluto. I forget every time that Robert Altman took on Popeye. Uh, well, his, the nader of his IMDb is is that movie. That's fine. I enjoyed it for what it was because that's me. Right, that's and that's fine. and and again, and that's where where we differ, and that's and and, and that's perfectly okay. Because guess what, uh, Maverick on on a on a budget of seventy five million, it made mm-hmm. one hundred eighty three million worldwide. Yeah, yeah. So again, am I the idiot out here saying the Emperor has no clothes when clearly people like a movie like this? Again, it's it's reviews were overwhelmingly positive, and I'm probably being harsher on it than it needs to be. But this is. Right. This is the definition. Because again, Donner made some movies that I love. Mel Gibson is a huge part of our childhood and of our young, formative, popular culture life. I've liked right. Jodie Foster in a lot of work. Like there's a William Goldman, I respect the hell out of him. But this is the kind of movie that to me reeks of a Hollywood system that someone like David Lynch abhors, where they have money. And they have the ability to market something and they say, we're going to give you a ton of money. And again, I don't know what anyone got paid. We're going to give you a lot of money to be in this movie that is about this pre-existing property. William Goldman, write us a script. Mel Gibson, be charming. Jodie Foster, try to do comedy. Okay, it's not really your thing, but you know, you're Jodie Foster and, <laughs> and we'll put you in it anyway. And it is a fine two-hour, seven-minute experience that I will literally... As soon as I hit stop on this podcast, I will never think about again. And maybe that's fucked up. And maybe it's it's not, maybe it's, disin, I don't want to say disingenuous. It would be disingenuous of me to act like I like this when I didn't. But maybe it just reflects the, the different types of moviegoers that exist in the world. I would definitely say that that is 100% true, Jason. That uh, uh, while I don't uh, begrudge you for not liking it, I really just wanted you to have more fun with this film than you did, and I'm, um, I'm just generally surprised that uh, you really didn't. And uh, that's bad on me for picking this movie, I guess. But whatever, that's fine. No, we'll, no, we will move forward. I, I, it's not like a. 
it, it's not like something where like oh my you know this I, I you chose a bad movie right because there's no there's no good or bad here in this podcast we refuse to look at it that way it's whether or not we respond to something or we didn't right and right. you've you've given me movies that I did not think I would like I I enjoyed fat by the end of Fast Five I was like yeah that safe is being dragged through Rio de Janeiro and give it to me and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> G- give me give me more Luda. Don't give me more Tyrese, but give me more Luda. I'm here for it. I'm okay. So I think there's a way to kind of experience these movies and, and, and watch them in such a way where you get something out of it and you enjoy yourself. But I, I just th- this particular one, I, I'm just I'm shocked that of all the movies that came out in 1994, including mm-hmm. um the Hudsucker Proxy, a Joel and Ethan Cohen masterpiece. Uh yep, yep, yep. uh I'm going through a list right now. Clerks came out in 1994. Uh, uh, Natural Born Killers. Um, yeah. Uh, in the Mouth of Madness, an underrated horror classic. Uh, Crooklyn. And of course, Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. Forrest Gump came out in 1994. Yeah. The Last Seduction, yeah. uh, John Dahl movie. Um, mm-hmm. There's a ton of stuff. Ed Wood. I can go on and on. It just surprises me that of the films that were in your mind this year, that that Maverick <laughs> occupies such a space that. Okay. Well, I know that you hadn't seen it, <laughs> so I, and I enjoyed it that that much. No, and 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 that's fine, and that's what that that's what this whole idea is about, right? Is is sort of exposing ourselves to to something else and. You know what I did? The other thing that I did when, when looking at this is I look back at Richard Donner's movie life. And again, Donner is a big deal because he directed Superman and and he also directed uh, The Goonies and I was and Lethal Weapon, of course. And I looked and I'm like, I don't know if he made everything that he did. I'm looking at his IMDb right now. And he just passed away like a year ago. Yes. Yep. yep. I'm not sure he made many good movies. Oh, That's oh, my position okay. now, okay? He did right. a lot of those 90s sort of thrillers like Assassins with mm-hmm. um, Antonio Banderas and Conspiracy Theory, another Mel Gibson movie, and Timeline, which is based on a Michael Crichton novel. Right, right. Uh, he might have been done by the time he did The Goonies. And I, don't, right. I haven't seen The Goonies in, in decades, Goonies. so maybe that doesn't oh. hold up. I oh, love that movie, but all right, all right, all right. Well, listen, that's this is going to be a um, this will be a fight for another time. But I, I, I have more respect for him than maybe you do. But that's fine. I think that he is a reliable workmanlike uh, director. I think he mm-hmm. he probably is one of those directors that is respected in Hollywood because he knows how to get a film done. You know, under budget and on, and I don't know. I'm I'm surmising here that like I think he he evokes sort of that safe Ron Howard esque sort of sensibility where <laughs> they are going to get a movie to the studio that the studio can then get out into the world. And I, that's not to shit on Ron Howard. He made Apollo thirteen. Like Ron Howard's made a lot of good movies. A Beautiful Mind. It's it's just to say that there are there are filmmakers who are reliable. And there are filmmakers who are wild cards. And mm-hmm. I just, it's my personality where I tend to want to go towards the, you know, the Lynches and the Nicholas Winding Refens and, and yeah. Jane Camp. And, that, and that's fine. It's just, it's different for different people. Okay. 
All right. Well, this this was the uh, this was the one that definitely uh, uh, split this <laughs> split this show in half, showing the uh, showing us exactly what it's all about. Who would have thought yeah. that it would have been Maverick, a movie I hadn't thought yeah. about in yeah. forever until you said it to me last week? Oh but boy, okay. th- this is the one that did it. So uh, I guess huh. so. all right. All well, right. as as usual, um, mm-hmm. you are no doubt much more prepared well, for. That's- funny you say that because i'm trying to give you something without making it seem as i'm paying you back (laughs) for not liking this film um but uh you know what i'm gonna stick with uh a uh a big budget film and uh i believe last week you said that it was underappreciated by a lot of people uh it was beloved by a lot of people and underappreciated so i'm gonna give you a action adventure and sometimes even horror with predators 2010 oh Uh, okay adrian brody starring in it Okay, which we're, we're going to have a big discussion about Adrian Brody's career, about when you watch this film and where he was at with the, his 2003 Oscar win to where he is in this film and maybe even where he is now. Uh, he's currently starring as Pat Riley in the yeah. HBO show yeah. Winning Time. Yes, but and while that's a big a big role for him, uh, we'll talk about uh, maybe missed opportunities over the last 20 years. You know, uh, I have a personal experience with Adrian Brody. Okay. I was in the Venetian in Las Vegas, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was walking to the poker room, and Adrian Brody was walking out, and I looked at him. You know what? Very tall. Very tall man. He seems tall. He seems tall. Seems like a tall guy. uh, he actually looks a lot different in this film than he has before. So um, he's definitely uh, a far cry from the pianist. Let's put it that way. Is this the one where they're all kind of like convicts or something? Yeah, yeah. They're all pretty much uh, not nice people. Let's put it there. And uh, some first roles for me of seeing uh, Mahersha Ali. I didn't realize this was in when I had uh, I bought this film back in 2010 on DVD. Mahersha Ali's that. in this? Uh, yeah. Oh, is, I'm excited. Uh, Walter Goggins. I, I know we've spoken oh, about Walter. Oh, hey, this, all right. I'm get, you're getting me excited now. Yeah, yeah so, uh, you know, you're going to go in knowing it's a freaking Predator film. And uh, let's see if the story does anything for you. And you want to talk about everybody on 11. Wait until you hear Fishburne in this one. <laughs> well, uh, if he, he's, he can't do any better than the Bowery King in the John Wick oh, yeah. universe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, maybe. We'll see. All right. Um, uh, to keep it a sci-fi-ish sort of okay. uh, week, oh, you're going to go back to <laughs> Russia. And I'm going to give you, and this is front of mind because a friend of ours recently mentioned a documentary that was done on this movie, but I'm going to give you uh, Tarkovsky's classic sci-fi introspective three-hour meditation on the meaning of life. Uh, his best movie, uh, it is good, I'm, 1977, I think, Stalker. Uh, actually I'm sorry it's like 1985 you know what I don't know I don't know what the year is but (laughs) the movie is Stalker it is Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky Russian Mm -hmm. film Um, that's all I'm going to say okay I knew it was coming so challenge accepted All right, so challenge accepted for next week we got uh, the 2010 version of Predators and back to Russia with Tarkovsky and Stalker and my voice is uh, 
blinking out on me because I've been yelling for the last hour and yeah, 16 minutes. Okay. And I appreciate that. Thank you for helping me get through this one. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what, yeah. Hey, listen, like we said, even though we may not always agree on these movies, the idea is, is that you should give them a shot yeah. because who knows? Yeah. You might like them. Absolutely. And uh, you know what? At least I have fun talking about them. Uh, that, and that is the point of yeah, this podcast exactly. for which we make no money. So... <laughs> Uh, that'll do it for this time around. Uh, Arco, thank you very much. Had a blast. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you. for everyone listening, thank you for checking in on another episode of Movie Challenge Accepted, and we will see you next time. Take care.